Nation podcast and what an exciting episode we have in store for our listeners today. The one, the only Nick Rowley is joining us. And well, brutal honesty, I can't believe we're actually at this point where people like Nick decided to come onto our podcast and share his wisdom with so many of you. Nick Rowley is the name that strikes fear into the hearts of the defense, winning over 100 plus jury trials and recovering over $1.5 billion in jury verdicts and settlements for his clients. He's the author of Running with the Bulls, Trial by Human, Verdire, Opening Statements, as well as the founder of Trial by Human, Training Summits and Trial Lawyers for Justice. And if that wasn't enough, he is a major advocate for putting an end to California's regressive cap on medical malpractice and is personally leading the charge with an initiative that we're going to cover today. So welcome, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to jump straight into some kind of like really good background, nitty gritty questions. You know, I know that you've overcome a lot of great odds um, to achieve the success that you've had, but other than hard work, what do you think has been the recipe for where you've got to where you are today? Standing up in the face of, you know, fear and against all odds when, you know, you, you're, you're looking at a, at a, it could be a situation in life. And if we're going to talk about the practice of law, you know, a case, a defense attorney, a big powerful corporation or insurance company or the government or a judge who's difficult and, you know, most people would, would just walk away or find some way to cut their losses. What, what I've done my best to do in those situations is to stand up and run full charge right into the battle, knowing that, you know, what, what's not going to, you know, kill me might hurt, but I'll get back up again. And if it does kill me, death is only temporary. We have many lives. I love that. <laughs> Nick, I've got a, a tactical question for you. Courtney mentioned that you have over 100 jury trials uh, verdicts. What do you think you do differently than most attorneys? What makes you unique in terms of picking a jury? Well, not to be nitpicky, but I have over 150 jury trials. And what I do different is I, I look at a jury trial as a just coming together of people, you know, regular, ordinary folk that just want to figure out, you know, what's right. They, 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 they come with open hearts and they, they are giving themselves their time, their attention, their good conscience. And it's a beautiful thing. So I, I look at jury trials as, as something magnificent, something that, you know, sets us apart from every other country in the world where we actually get to have our neighbors make decisions about what's right and what's wrong and decide whether or not a person's being treated wrongfully and whether a person or a family is entitled to justice. So to me, a jury trial is the, the ideal place to be, you know, it's, it's all the hard work to get there that, that is stressful. But once we're there in front of the jury, oh boy, that's, you know, now, now good things can happen because we've got people making decisions and not bureaucrats or politicians or politically appointed people. So was, was there a jury trial in your, in your career that you look back on that maybe took you to the next level as an attorney? It was close to, close to 20 years ago. I was representing a woman. She was really big, you know, like six foot four, six foot five, a huge woman. And she was, she was very overweight. You know, the medical records called her morbidly obese. And they, you know, the case was about she, she had gone in to have a procedure done, which is called an anterior posterior repair, where, where they go in and, and they take the, 
the lining inside the vagina and the rectum and they basically cut it and then sew it back together and kind of just tie everything up. So, so I go in to try this case and, and it's the, the, the then um, president of ABOTA, the American Board of Trial Advocates, you know, the, this organization that everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people really look up to and and, and, you know, there are some great, great things that that organization does. And there are some, some members of that organization that I have great respect for that are trial lawyers. But this is the president. This is the guy. This is the big dog who I'm trying this case against. And, and when they went in to do this anterior-posterior repair, um, the reason why they did it was because she had a, a vaginal prolapse. She had, had, you know, had a number of kids and all that weight basically kind of pushes stuff out. So she goes in to have this procedure done and the doctor botches the surgery resulting in a hole between her rectum and her vagina which means that you know fecal matter is now going you know through a place where it's not supposed to be it's called a rectovaginal fistula in the the case came to me on a, on a Friday. I just happened to, to be in court. There were mandatory settlement conferences going on, and I was, I was there, you know, on another case. And there was a lawyer who was there who, who had heard about me, and he, and he grabbed me, and he pulled me aside, and he said, hey, I've got this case going to trial on Monday. What do you think about it? And he told me about it. And as you all know, I, I, was, a, I was a military medic, so I know a little bit about medicine. And he said, they're not offering any money. So, you know, what are your thoughts? Do you have any interest in, you know, trying the case? Like, well, it's Friday and trial's on Monday. Okay. I said, well, let me, let me meet the client. Mm -hmm. And I met her. And she was such a sweet, sweet, kind woman. You could tell she, she'd grown up, you know, being big and overweight, not the, not the prettiest woman, you know, some people might describe her differently, mm-hmm. but I saw the beauty in her and I saw that what, what happened to her really, really, you know, took away the little bit of self-confidence and dignity that she had. It was it was really it was, it was really bad, and this doctor and this you know defense attorney, and of course the insurance company who was you know calling the shots as to whether or not to pay, they said we're not going to pay anything on the case. In fact, even if you win, all you can get is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars because of because of Micra. It was twenty years ago, and. So I took the case, picked the jury, you know, trying it against, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new lawyer at that point in time, trying the case against the, you know, one of the top medical malpractice defense attorneys in the state, if not the country. And it was, uh, I mean, it was a battle. Every, you know, question I'd ask, there'd be an objection and every, it seemed, um, like the judge was being really difficult. I, I, I was, I was all alone in that trial and I didn't have any help. And, and, you know, was still trying to, you know, figure out how to try a case without getting in trouble. And somehow, you know, I just kept pushing forward. I just kept pushing forward. And at that point in time, I'd write out everything. I'd write out my entire direct examination of each witness. I'd write out my entire cross-examination. I'd write out my opening, my closings, and, and I did all my law and motion work. So I, I was just working day and night on, on this case. And it, it lasted lasted a few weeks. And when, when it came time for the closing argument, I did the closing argument, sat down, and the defense lawyer got up and just went off on me, went off on the entire case. He was angry. 
And he was angry because I think he realized that that he'd been beat and that he was going to lose. And he went on, and his closing argument was two and a half hours. I mean, pounding the table, this, that. I mean, just it was it's like, wow, this guy's, you know, this guy's really, really lost it. I got up and I did my rebuttal, and it was very short, like maybe, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. And the jurors came back and and we won. We won the case. The verdict got reduced to, you know, 250,000, but, but we won the case. And I remember the moment when the jury read their verdict and I was there, I was there with, with this woman, I was holding her hand and they, you know, they read the verdict was, you know, doctor so-and-so negligent. Yes. Was his negligence a substantial factor in causing, you know, harm? Yes. What are the damages? And she cried and she cried and I cried with her, holding her hand. And I, I realized at that point that I was really the only one that, you know, at least at that point in time in that area, I was the only one that, that could win that case for her. You know, the stars had hit a line. The universe had brought me there. And the, you know, the look on the defense lawyer's face, he, you know, afterwards came up to me and said, you're never going to be a member of a BOTA. And, you know, I'm like, okay, great. Right. Um, and, and it just, and, and I thought I was going to lose the case. I really did until the defense lawyer got up with that closing argument. And it still took the jurors like a couple days to deliberate because it's so tough, you know, to, to get a jury to decide a case against a healthcare provider, you know, the heroes and mistakes happen. And I, just at that point, I said, I have to try, I have to try cases. I have to try as many cases as possible. And I have to try the cases that, that nobody else will try the cases that are tough, the cases that I might lose and, you know, get, getting beaten down on because people like Miss Martinez, they need me. And then, you know, I, well, I, I can't do it alone. So I've got to help other people, you know, gain the skills and figure out how to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's been my focus, you know, really since that point in my career is to continue trying cases and, and more importantly, to get other lawyers fired up, geared up, you know, trained and ready to go out and, and try these tough cases. And I, and I think there, there has been and, and I've been a small part in a wave of change throughout our country. Absolutely. And on that, Trial Lawyers for Justice, um, you know, this is your, apart from Trial by Human, sort of your passion project is helping these other attorneys become, you know, really bring that human spirit into the courtroom. Do you want to talk a little bit about trial lawyers for justice and how you actually are bringing that change to other lawyers and sort of giving them a little bit of the rally method to take out there? Sure. So trial lawyers for justice is a firm that I founded, I think 13 years ago. And when, when I first, you know, formed the firm and started the website in my home state of Iowa, the Iowa disciplinary board sent me a letter and said, you can't, you know, your law firm can't be a trade name. So I had to fight with them on that. And fortunately I, I won. So I was able to, what's new. I was, I, yeah, I was able to keep, keep the name trial lawyers for justice. And the, the idea behind it, the premise is that I wanted to build a law firm. That's, that, that's not 
Nick Rowley or, you know, Gary Dordick or Jerry Spence or, um, you know, all, all the names out there. I could go on and on and on, you know, about the, the great lawyers and, and they have their name on the door. You know, having my name on the door wasn't really that important to me. What was important to me is to is is the hope, you know, the idea, the dream that I could build a law firm of like-minded lawyers, not just in the state of Iowa, but nationally, who would who would commit to trying cases, caring about their clients, practicing law in a different way, showing judges and juries that trial lawyers are important and wonderful and caring and good and necessary because we we've had a lot of propaganda throughout the years and some really bad examples of you know trial lawyers and how they behave so the so so the trial lawyers for justice firm which is now in in multiple states and, and growing is, is a firm that that is dedicated to trying cases not quantity, bringing in as many cases as we possibly can, but rather quality and having, you know, humans, people and families that we represent that we're connected with, who know us, people that we know, people that become family to us. And then to take those cases, if if we don't get that top dollar settlement that that, you know, person or their family is entitled to, and we take it into a courtroom, and we take that caring connection, that love, that compassion, right right into the courtroom and put it in front of a jury and having lawyers that are skilled and equipped to do that that are dedicated to to not only you know learning you know what it takes to try a case the right way but who are dedicated to continue the learning process cuz I mean I'm I'm 44 I've I've been at this you know over 20 years now I'm still learning you know, I'm still learning. The, the last case I tried, I'm like, wow, I just I think I got a little better <laughs> because I've been working at it. I'm always working at it. And the, the, the lawyers that, that are part of Trial by Human, you know, are giving up their own um, their own name, their own name on the door and making it about something greater than themselves. That's that's that, that's what the firm's about. And if we can replicate that and. And, and have have offices throughout the country where where people have a place to go when they really need help and when they need a real trial lawyer or other lawyers you know who who need who need some direction need some mentoring or have a case that they need help with that they have somebody they can turn to and I you know the I, I guess I'm trying to plant some seeds you know and and grow some you know, aspen, aspen trees, they're all connected at the roots, right? So you might I was thinking of what a badass tree was. And I was like, maybe a Aussie eucalyptus, but we'll go with aspen. Yeah. I mean, th- think, think of a bunch of these, you know, trees being planted throughout the country. And then they all come together underneath and are connected by their roots and their you know, spreading goodness throughout, throughout America. That's, that's what, that's what I'm hoping for. And it's, you will definitely get yeah, it. And it's not about the money. I, I think the other thing I found is that, you know, trying cases when I'm trying a case, I'm not thinking about how much money it's costing me or how much money I'm going to make because I mean, you never know, are you going to win? Or are you going to lose? Or, you know, if you do win, are you going to get paid? Are they going to appeal it? Or are they going to delay it? There's so many things that can happen. Your client could die and then you're, you're, you know, 90% of your cases got it and gone because the damages die with the person you're representing. So if you're, if you're thinking about, oh my God, what's this costing me? And what am I going to make? Then you're not focused on the case and you're not focused on justice. So the way I try cases is I focus on what, what's right in front of me and not, and, 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 and take all the noise and you know, just shut it out. On that note, I want to talk about a tactical question that I think a lot of our listeners will want to know from you. 
What gives you the confidence to ask for the settlement opportunities that you present? So if you, if you, if you get up and you're asking the jury or you're asking a judge or I'm asking you, I'm asking you, Chris, Courtney, you know, I, I need to ask you for something. Um, I'm going to ask you for money. What, what is that? What does that feel like inside? Chris, can I, I talk to you for a minute? I need to ask you for some money. I think it, it puts me like a bit leery. Uh, it gives me, it invites questions into my mind. So maybe I'm less inclined to give it to you. Yeah. Courtney? Yeah, I would say for me, when you're asking someone, you're already taking that position of they're, they're like, have something that they're holding from you and you can't get it. So it's like when you're asking, you're coming from that place as you already think they might say no, rather than like the answer is definitely going to be yes. So if I, if I ask you for money, it's going to put you back on your heels a bit. We've all been asked for money. And it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> right? Again, really? Am I ever going to get paid back? Um, can I trust this person? Asking people for money triggers a lot of emotions, bad experiences. You know, and we're also taught, we're also taught to not ask people for money, aren't we? Everybody's taught that from growing up. People that ask for money are beggars, yeah. right? They're, they're, they're desperate. And what are they going to do with the money, right? If, if we give it to them, what, what are they going to do with it? Waste it. Yeah. So... If we reframe, you know, the way we think and the way we talk about money damages and, and jury verdicts and what, you know, the amount of a jury verdict should be, and we start by reframing that, you know, that thought within our, within our, in our own heads and our, within ourselves, and we say, we're not asking. We're not asking. What our job is, is to tell the jurors what the case is worth is to tell the judge what the case is worth. And if a judge says, or a defense lawyer says, well, they can ask for anything. You can look at the jurors and say, folks, we're not asking. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not asking you for money. You know, the time um, for asking for help, for asking for fairness, for asking for reasonableness, for asking to be taken seriously and respected. That time has passed. Asking didn't work out very well. You can look right over at that defense lawyer or back at that insurance company, you know, shit weasel sitting back in the, you know, back corner of the courtroom. You know, it was really you know, making all the decisions, you know, back behind the curtains in the dark. Asking didn't work out so well. So we are here. And my job is to tell you, based upon the evidence and the law, what these numbers should be. And your job is to go back there in the jury room. And it's not to ask each other. It's not your job. You're not going back there to ask each other. You're going back there to tell each other what you believe it's worth and why. So there is no ask here. There is no asking. But we're all going to talk about it and tell each other what, what it ought to be and what's reasonable and what's 100%, what full justice is. But if we put it, if we put it all on a scale because it is money, it's got to it's balance out. And, and it's got to weigh enough. It's got to be enough that takes those scales of justice and makes them even. And when we're talking about a human being, 
who has pain for the rest of her life, disfigurement, impairment for the rest of her life. And she's in her 20s. $50 million is not unreasonable. That's the amount it ought to be. You could say it's less. Some might say it ought to be a number that's cheap. And you get to tell them that, no, that's wrong. So stop asking, start believing, and start telling people what it's worth. And know that if you were sitting there and, and you were representing, you know, I don't know, somebody that, that was driving a, a one-of-a-kind, um, you know, collector car, maybe, maybe it, you know, I don't know, one of Steve McQueen's cars or something, you know, and it was $10 million or a Babe Ruth baseball bat that was, you know, negligently broken or destroyed or some, or an airplane that somebody happened to drive into and destroy, you know, one of my airplanes, you'd get up and you'd say, folks, that, that's worth $10 million. That's what the verdict ought to be. You write $10 million down right here. They, they negligently destroyed that expensive, you know, well, I guess it's replaceable, but maybe it's not replaceable. When it comes to human beings and what they've lost, it's not replaceable. There isn't a price. It's actually priceless. So if we're going to be if we're going to be honest about what it's worth, then, then it's a lot of money. And your job as jurors isn't to you're not entering a judgment and, and making the, the the defendants, you know, pay tomorrow. That's not, your job is to deliver the verdict and say, this is what we as members of the community believe this is worth. For these folks, you know, for this person, for this girl, for this man, for this grandpa, for this wife, for this mother. This is this is what we say it's worth. Then the judge takes that. We talk to the judge about judgment and then how it gets paid, if it gets paid at some point in time, we deal with that with the judge. Your job is, is to speak the truth about what it's worth. So, so backing up to earlier in a case, a lot of attorneys write what they call demand letters. My understanding is you teach uh, to call it a settlement opportunity and view it as a settlement opportunity. Is that correct? And then if so, can you talk a little bit about why, why you teach that? Ask me what my demand is. What is your demand? A jury trial. Because the law says that if I'm, you know, filing a lawsuit, I need to put in something called a demand for a jury trial. Is there anything in the law that says that you have to send a demand letter? Not that I'm aware of. If you're a juror, you know, someday looking at a, you know, insurance bad faith case or a case against an insurance company that failed to settle a case reasonably, failed to pay the policy limits. And your and your job is to, you know, look and say, hey, was this insurance company reasonable? And one of the first things you look at is this letter. It says demand letter. Is that going to put you back on your heels a little bit? I think so, yeah. Yeah, think of the words. And then, it, So as lawyers, we have to now explain, well, what a demand letter really is, if we go back to Contracts 101, you know, there's a demand, there's an offer, there's a rejection, there's an acceptance. So really don't be, you know, rubbed the wrong way by, by this word demand. It's just a legal term. How about we just take that out of the equation? Because the word demand, it... It doesn't sound kind, does no. it? No, it sounds sounds kind of aggressive. And it is aggressive. So, you know, I, I thought, why, why don't we change the way that, that we practice in this civil justice system of ours? Let's stop demanding. Let's be kind. And in our letters, let's provide opportunities. This is a settlement opportunity whereby 
you know, you, the insurance company, can protect the interests of your loyal insurance, you know, policyholders. And there's there's a whole book on it, Running with the Bulls. And, you know, I've refined methods since then. You know, I, I think actually I, I think back when I wrote Running with the Bulls, I was still using demand. And then, you know, I'm, I'm trying I'm always trying to evolve. And you say, listen, we're, we're providing you with an opportunity here, an opportunity to avoid putting, you know, your insured policyholders through unnecessary litigation. We're giving you the opportunity to make it so they don't have to sit through a jury trial and be inconvenienced and have to, you know, listen to the, you know, to the horror and the you know, testimony that, you know, is going to remind them of, of what they negligently did to, to a young woman. Don't put your insureds through that. Uh, no, no human being would want to have to sit there throughout an entire trial as a pawn for an insurance company that hasn't hasn't paid its policy limits. Have to sit there and listen to to the you know to the horrific experience that this young girl went through and and how she's going to need her her foot amputated in her future and how she she's living in her early twenties now with chronic pain and had a beautiful life before, this is an opportunity to resolve this case so that you don't have to put your insured through all of that. Your insured made a mistake. We all make mistakes. Your insured was negligent. We all commit negligence at some point in our life. That's why we have insurance. We have insurance not only to protect ourselves, but also to provide for others. So this is an opportunity to globally resolve this case to get the young girl fairly compensated and to protect the insured defendant policyholder from having to go through a really, really stressful trial. And also an opportunity to get this case settled globally within the policy limits so that your insured doesn't end up having this on his credit report or a judgment you know, that, that then is, is recorded you know, in the county where where he lives, and that in a judgment that's taken, you know, and, and used to to levy his bank accounts, to get his tax return money, to you know get any of the vehicles that he owns, put liens on his property, and and have have this this insured policyholder defendant go through a whole bunch of hell, maybe even bankruptcy, that can all be avoided if you just pay the policy limits and do what's right. We frame it that way. Now, if you're a juror someday deciding an insurance bad faith case, you're looking at that and going, wow, that lawyer representing the injured girl was really reasonable. He was actually trying to protect the defendant. And this shitbag insurance company wouldn't pay because it's bad because it's a bad, greedy, badly behaved insurance company. So you can win your bad faith case just based upon your letters. And, and all you're writing is the truth. But if it's a demand and it's aggressive and it's this and it's that, you know, when, 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 you, when you come across that way, you're putting the person on the other side of the field in a position where then they've got to gear up to fight with you. So maybe it's, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of martial arts over my life. Maybe it's kind of like an Aikido type of flow. <laughs> you know, way, way of, of, of trying cases, moving the energy without, you know, coming at them with aggression. So, Nick, I want to talk a little bit to you about fear and risk. This is more personal stuff, but do you still experience fear as an attorney and how do you stop it, first of all, from like hindering your performance? I don't live in fear. I really don't. Um, there, there are times where I, I feel 
a bit of fear creeping in, in in this last trial against Dana Fox. You know, he's he's a big name insurance defense lawyer in, in California and nationally. Very, very good lawyer. I tried the case um, with Courtney and Steve McElroy against Dana Fox and his partner, John Lowenthal. And I, I was afraid at times. I think, um, I think because he's a lawyer that has, has had great success beating a lot of other very, you know, accomplished plaintiff's lawyers. And this was my, you know, I, I'd been itching to go up against him for years. I thought, well, boy, if I, this guy beats me, it's going to feel really bad. And maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe there's some skill, some ability that he has that I haven't seen yet. Right. Cause you hear the, you know, the legend of Dana Fox and you see him winning all these cases, cases that he shouldn't win. So he's got to be good. So I'd, I'd, you know, get up in the morning and sometimes I'd play that, um, what does the Fox say song? And I would just, I'd, I'd, you know, just try to make light of it, try to make light of it. And also he, he's a real likable guy. So he, you know, would do some things that most defense lawyers would do because they're doing their job. They have to do whatever they can do to win, you know, that would really piss me off. But because it's him and he's real charming, I, it was kind of hard to get pissed off at the guy, which means that if he's, you know, pulling the same stunts that other insurance defense lawyers pull in front of the jury, then he's got a chance of getting away with it where other lawyers wouldn't. I mean, he's, he's a, he's a smooth criminal if, if we're going to classify <laughs> insurance defense lawyers as criminal, which they're not, they're not, but he, he's, he's smooth. So, so the way that I dealt with that was I just calmed down, you know, I prepared a little harder than, than I, than I otherwise might, you know, spent, I mean, Twelve hours preparing one one hour cross exam of a witness. Normally, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I, I I've done this so much that I don't have to prepare as much as I used to. But I mean, I, I really worked hard, and you know, I tried the case without fear. And as the case got going on and on and on, I'm like, all right, he's he's good, but you know, he ain't no Daisy. <laughs> You know, I mean, he doesn't have anything on me. Great, great trial lawyer, but maybe, maybe he's, maybe, you know, he'll beat me on a case if he's got the facts and, and the evidence, but he doesn't. And at the end of the day, he did the same thing that other, you know, defense lawyers do. Sneaky. They pull out video surveillance right when the trial's all done and over and all the witnesses are done and we're resting our case and going into closing arguments. He goes, well, your honor, I've, you know, I've got some evidence, some impeachment evidence, some video surveillance. We had to have a day and a half hearing on that, and he lost. It didn't come in, and it shouldn't have come in. But he, you know, had the same sneaky, you know, tricks up his sleeve. But they didn't work. They didn't work. And then in closing argument, you know, I pounded on him. Thank God. Yeah. So. So I guess that's a long, long answer to your question. What do you do when, if you're afraid? Work harder, you know, work out, exercise during trial, do some meditation, turn off your cell phone, take some quiet moments and just, you know, take a walk, go for a walk in the evenings without your device, breathe in the air, look at this beautiful planet that we live in, you know, look at your family members, read a book to your kids or to yourself or do something other than work for at least, you know, 15 to 30 minutes each day and make sure you exercise, eat healthy and have fun. You know, if you're afraid and say, all right, what am I really afraid of? What am I really afraid of? All right. Might that happen? Yeah, it might. What can I do to prevent it? 
I can work hard, but it's going to happen. There's really nothing I can do to prevent it. So let's have fun. I like that. So sort of wrapping up on that question then, you know, when you start off in your career and you're this young lawyer and you'll take, try any case that you can. And it's more about like, you're the underdog. So you're like, if I win something, that's fantastic. And over time, you're sort of the legend of Nick Rowley grows and no one can beat you. And then after a while, it's like, how do you sort of balance that thought of the risk of going to trial? And, you know, you talk, you touched a little bit on it about what's the worst that can happen if, if this guy wins. But, you know, after a while, it's like, how do you sort of get back to that mindset that you had when you're a young, aggressive lawyer that was just beginning that was like, you know, I'm going out there and giving it all because you've had this great long career and you want to keep that going. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, my mindset hasn't really changed. I'm, you know, <laughs> look at the past few years. I mean, COVID really doesn't represent, you know, the, I guess the way I practice law because we had courthouses shut down. So I haven't, you know, tried, I usually average, you know, 10 jury trials a year. And I, I did that for, you know, about, you know, 18 years was, you know, trying 10 cases a year. Sometimes one, one year I tried six, one year I tried 15, you know, it, but an average of 10. During COVID, I've only tried three cases. So it's, uh, you know, it's been, it's been slower and I've enjoyed that. And I think I've used that opportunity to really learn and hone my skills in. And the times I've been back in a courtroom, I'm like, Hey, I think I've, I think I've hit another level, but I have not changed my mindset. I am still the lawyer that will, you know, try any case anywhere, anytime. If I've got the time to do it, I get that phone call. I jump in. It was just a few years back. I got a phone call on a Saturday on a med mal case. Jury was being selected on Monday. Sunday morning, I was got in the jet, flew out, tried that case in three days and, you know, won an eight-figure verdict. And there, there are a lot of cases like that where, where I've jumped in at the last minute, you know, the day before trial. So I'm still willing to do that, and I'm still willing to try tough cases with low offers. I started a, a jury trial in Riverside, would have been um, two and a half weeks ago. Case ended up settling, but that was, a, it was, you know, what you'd call a small case. They were, you know, disputing liability. They, you know, were only offering, you know, a small amount of money. There, there wasn't a lot of objective evidence. The, the client at the scene said he was fine. And then it's, you know, later on that he's diagnosed with problems. And then you've got you know, lawyers involved with getting doctors and, you know, the, the same, the messy cases that, that we hear about. I, I heard about that case and a friend called me. I said, all right, I'll do it. And I jumped in, jumped in and, you know, started moving forward with the trial and then it settled. But I would have been in that case for, you know, two to three weeks. Not because I, I would have made any money off of it and, because it's the right thing to do and a friend needed help. And I just happened to have that time, you know, on my calendar to do it. And a lot of the cases that I have stacked up for trials, so I might have three trials, you know, booked in November. Sometimes I show up in, in a courtroom and all of a sudden they're like, okay, well, you know, we're ready to write a check or wire the money. Like, <laughs> okay. You know, we fold. And at that point, I make them pay a lot more, but then I have an opening on my schedule for like two weeks and I get a call and okay, you know, now I'm in Colorado now I'm going to, you know, shoot to Massachusetts or Indiana or Illinois or Washington or somewhere else and jump in on another one. So I, I still have that same mentality that, that I'll, that I'll try any case anywhere. What, what is changing in my life is that I'm making sure that my family is the priority. I have a lot of kids. You, you all know that. So I, I've, I've, um, I've lived my, my life as a parent for 24 years now, and I've missed too much time with my kids. 
and now I have, you know, my, my three littlest ones, which Courtney and I homeschool, I, I'm not going to, I've worked hard enough to where I can make the choice, you know, not to spend the time away from them that I had to spend in order to build what we now have when it, when I was raising my other kids. And now I'm spending a lot of time with all of my other kids and I'm making family a priority. So in the next few years, what you're going to see is me doing less trials. What I'll do is I'm going to take three trials at a time that are going to be on my trial only list for a year. So we're talking 2020. It's going to be in the future. So let's say 2026. I have three trials. That's it. And you have a choice. You have a choice. Chubb Insurance Company, AIG, Farmers, State Farm, whomever, you know, the government. You have a choice. You can be one of the three. And I'm giving you an opportunity. And this opportunity is, you know, you pay this amount of money. Take it or leave it. Any counter offer is a rejection. You pay this amount or you're one of the three. You are a trial only case. And you're staying on and you're staying on this list. We're going to trial. Or you can be smart. You can pay the money, compensate the, the person, the human, the family I'm representing, and you come off the list. But when that when that defendant comes off the list, another one goes on. So I'll, I'll get to a point where I'm going to do three trials a year. That's my plan. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, when I'm 48 or 55, but I'm going to get to that point. And then maybe when I'm, you know, in my 60s, it'll be two trials a year. And then maybe when I'm in my 70s, it'll be one trial a year. And, and if I do the math, I think that by the time I finish my career, I'll probably have 250 jury trials. That's kind of my my career goal. So I'm I'm more than halfway there now. So Nick, you um, <clears throat> you've spearheaded an initiative in California called the Fairness for Injured Patients Act. You've I, I know poured a lot of your time and resources into it, and you did a podcast recently where you you really went in depth on it and I, you've been so generous with your time here. I don't want you to, to do that. We're going to link to that episode in our show notes. So our listeners can go and listen to it, but for our listeners, can you just at a high level talk about what FIPA is trying to accomplish and how and why it's so important? Yes. FIPA is the fairness for injured patients act. Fairnessact.com is the website. In 1975, insurance companies and their lobbyists, they convinced doctors to go protest, to basically storm the, the state capitol in California, telling Jerry Brown that the reason why insurance rates were so high for physicians, malpractice insurance, was because of medical negligence lawsuits, and runaway jury verdicts. Governor Jerry Brown and a bunch of politicians, most of whom were receiving money from the insurance companies and the California Medical Association, which is a puppet for the insurance companies, they signed in a piece of legislation that is the most regressive medical negligence law in American history, the most restrictive law that takes away civil rights of healthcare patients in American history. This is 1975 when Gerald Ford was president. What it did was it capped the value of any child or baby's life who is killed by medical negligence to $250,000 minus attorney's fees and costs. Stay-at-home parents, their lives are also capped at $250,000. Retirees, 
$250,000 retired teachers, retired, you know, people who aren't working anymore. Or just, you know, um, single people, adult children, college students. If they're negligently killed. $250,000 minus attorney's fees and costs is the value of their life. So if you have a stay-at-home mom who's, who's killed by egregious medical negligence, and that mom has three children and a husband, then it's a clear-cut case, slam dunk. The jury comes back with the verdict and says that it's worth, you know, $3 million. That was the value of, of her life, the value of her love, companionship, comfort, society, protection, guidance, all the different elements of harm under California law. Then that husband and those three children would get $250,000 minus attorney's fees and costs, and they'd have to split that amount. Maybe they'd end up with about you know, twenty-five dollars to $30,000 each for the negligent killing of, you know, the mother, the wife. That's been the law since 1975, and the numbers haven't changed to the tune of one penny. The California legislature, the governors in California have done nothing about it. But if you look at the money that they receive, they receive money from the California Medical Association, which is a puppet for the insurance companies. There's an organization called CAP, C-A-P-P, Californians Allied for Patient Protection. Micra.org, Micra is the law from 1975. It is such a lie, such a fraud. It's a horrific piece of legislation. And the reason why no legislators and no governor has done anything about it is because the insurance companies and the California Medical Association and their lobbyists have control over those politicians. The proof is in the pudding. It's disgusting. So Courtney and I have put up many millions of dollars now. We've um, had a few, you know, really good people contribute, but not much. I, I think we've, maybe we've raised half a million dollars so we're going to have to put in, you know, 10 million, 15 million, 20 million of our own money to get this through because nobody else is standing up to do anything about it. It's a, it's a crying shame. I, I, I hope that lawyers throughout the country will get onto fairnessact.com and, you know, contribute all they can, 50,000, 100,000, 1,000, 500,000, whatever they can. And, and if we change this law in California, where I really do the least amount of practicing. I'm not doing this to make money. I, I'm doing this because I've seen the tragedy of this law and how it's affected so many people. I'm doing this because I lost a, a child to medical negligence, almost lost my daughter Una to medical negligence. It's the third leading cause of death in our country. And I'm, I'm hoping that people will come together and put up the money to fight these insurance companies and change this law once and for all. The um, one thing people really might want to want to look at and watch is a movie called Making a Killing. It'll be coming out. It's um, something we've produced. It's like a real movie. It's a I mean, it is a movie. With the with human beings and families and stories that exposes the harm that this horrible law, you know, inflicts and has inflicted on Californians for almost 50 years. It exposes the corruption in the, in the legislature. It tells stories and, um, you know, exposes California's dirty secret that 95% of voters don't know about. We're going to be screening that movie at the Trial Lawyers University Conference in Las Vegas next week. We'll do a private screening and hopefully you will all see it on Netflix this winter. And maybe that'll be enough to Maybe it'll spread like California wildfire and everybody will watch it because if everybody watches it or if we get a majority of voters to watch it, we'll win just based on the movie. So that's, that's, um, that's what the Fairness for Injured Patients Act is about. We just um, worked in New Mexico to take their cap from 1976 and raise it to $6 million. 
we've um, we've worked to beat caps. I've been, you know, help leading that charge in Iowa three different times. Um, beat caps in Arkansas. And if we do it in California and we all come together, then we'll go start doing it in other states too and, and get rid of these horrible restrictions on patient civil rights. So Nick, we're down to our final two questions. Uh, first, is there a type of case that you have not tried in front of a jury that you would like to before your career's over? I want to try a case against Monsanto. I want to try one of those cases that holds a big pharmaceutical company responsible or a big corporation responsible for causing harm to a lot of people. I, I, I want to have a bite at one of those. Great answer. And our last question, which we ask every guest is what is something that you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting your career out 20 years ago or so? Being calmer and more thoughtful as compared to being aggressive and, you know, fighting for everything works out better. You know, you're, you're not going to win every, every decision. And when, you know, judges have, have, have a tough job, right? Yeah. Some, some judges are great. And then you get a few that are really rotten and horrible to deal with. Nothing worse than, you know, trying a case against an insurance defense attorney in a black robe, you know, who, who is hometown and you're working hard to help your opponent and screw your case or who doesn't like personal injury cases or med mal or whatever it is you're doing. But um, for the most part, judges are really trying to do their best. They're calling balls and strikes. And if, you, if you're spending time getting mad at the referee, getting mad at the judge because he didn't call, call the strike, then you're going to end up having a bad relationship with that judge. If you're, you know, so just understand, you know what? Well, I may not have, I may not have won on that issue, but I'm going to accept that and be respectful and move on to the next one. And maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll win on the next one. And if, and if it starts to really turn out to where, you know, you really see that you're being treated unfairly, then make a kind, respectful record about that and tell the judge, you know, I, I, I really feel that, and I, and I hate to have to make this record, but it's my job. I, I don't believe my my client is getting a fair trial here, Your Honor, and I've counted up the, um, you know, rulings you made in favor of the defense, and, and I take issue with a number of them, and here are the reasons why. And it seems that every time they object, it gets sustained, and every time I object, it gets overruled. I've been doing this for a long time. I, I know, you know, what the laws of evidence are, and it and it, it really seems that, you know, the scales are are leaning or being tipped in favor of my opponent. And that doesn't feel very good. And, and I and I don't think it's something that the court is doing consciously, but it is happening. And then, um, you know, if you have a lawyer, a defense lawyer who's a real jerk, don't 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 roll in the mud with a pig. If they get aggressive and they get mean and rude. You get kind, more respectful. If they're fast and aggressive and slow it down. Be the one that's in control. Don't lose your temper. That never works out well in, in the courtroom. And, you know, I lost my temper quite a bit when I was a young lawyer. I love that. Nick, you know, I appreciate you coming on. And so does Chris. This is probably going to be our most listened to episode where we did break number one trial or a podcast on iTunes a couple of months ago, but we always stay in the top three. So tell everyone where they can find out more information about FIPR, Trial Lawyers for Justice and Trial by Human. Trial Lawyers for Justice, it's TL, the number four, J.com, TL4J.com. Fairness Act is fairnessact.com. My cell number is 310-779-8718. Got a text message from a lawyer I've never talked to last weekend, and he's from Baltimore. 
actually no, he's from Rhode Island. And he you know, reached out to me about the case he's in the middle of, you know, trying. And I got on the phone and spent a half hour with him. It's what I love to do is helping others. So if anyone wants to reach out to me about any questions, a case or anything or how to change, you know, caps in your state, just reach out. I'll, I always respond to text messages and emails. Nick, N-I-C-K at TL4J.com is my email. Well, he's the best neighbor. He's the best trial lawyer that we know. Thank you so much, Nick. Uh, we can't wait to put this episode out. And for everyone that listens to Settlement Nation, make sure you like, subscribe, and comment. And if you love this episode with Nick, make sure you tell us because we definitely have to have you back, for, I think, for a part two. One more thing, trialbyhuman.com. Join our list, sir. Unless you're a insurance defense lawyer or government or corporate lawyer, <laughs> join our listserv, get on trialbyhuman.com, come to some of our events. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Nick, for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.